major lessons from the minor prophets. And um, to remind you of uh, our understanding of what is happening in the minor prophets, basically these were prophets that were sent out during one specific period in the life and history of uh, the nation of Israel. And it was just prior to the Assyrian and Babylonian captivity. It was during the Babylonian and Assyrian captivity. And then it was a little later after that. So that's the period in which these um, minor prophets, as we tend to call them, uh, spoke. We have been very clear that when we refer to them as minor, it is not because their messages are not important. It is rather because of the shortness of their messages. So you have uh, some that are just literally one chapter, uh, but a few are a little longer. However, their messages are still as important as any part of God's word. There is no part of God's word that does not matter. Every part of it, Genesis to Revelation, they all matter. We have thus far seen the background of uh, Micah himself. We notice from chapter 1 at the very beginning where he lived. We also saw when he lived and ministered. And then in chapter 1 and chapter 2, um, we have particularly seen his um, messages. In chapter 1, it was a condemnation of uh, the people of Israel and Judah because of their idolatry. Instead of being committed to the God of heaven, they had allowed themselves to follow the traditions of the nations around them. And therefore, they had become worshippers of idols while at the same time worshipping God in his temple. In chapter 2, we noticed how uh, God, through Micah, was now dealing with a horizontal plane. He was condemning uh, the people of Israel, especially those who had positions of power. He was condemning them for the abuse of his people. And that's what we looked at. And basically, two things. First of all, we asserted that it's important for us never to divorce our horizontal relationships from our vertical relationship. We must always realize that God has given two tablets of his law, two. And he didn't say only one is important. He gave them as the Decalogue, ten commandments, half of them to do with worshiping him, the other half to do with loving one another. So we too need to recognize that. And then secondly, whereas the passage was primarily dealing with the way in which uh, these powerful people were abusing those who were under them, 
we deliberately made it a positive exposition as well. In other words, we went on to speak in terms of how we ought to relate to those who are under us. So we are not just individuals wanting to say, I've escaped, but rather we should be individuals who are saying, well, these are the heights to which I ought to aspire. Well, that's what we've done thus far. Uh, this evening, we go into chapter 3. And uh, in this chapter, we see the fact that leaders, especially church leaders, can cause God's punishment to be upon his people. Now, it's true in any form of leadership. For instance, leadership in the marriage, leadership in the family, leadership in the corporate world, leadership in the um, church context, and so forth. Any form of leadership, number one, is a privilege for those who are in positions of leadership. But it's also a very big responsibility because a lot hangs on your head. A lot. If you fail, you don't go down alone. You bring judgment and punishment also upon those who are your followers. And that's what we see in this passage together. First of all, God graphically condemns the abuses of power by leaders. He graphically condemns the abuse of power. We see this in the first three verses. And you can't miss the reason why I have added that graphic imagery that is used. And I said, hear you heads of Jacob and rulers of the house of Israel. Now you may say, but you are saying here, graphic, well here it is. Is it not for you to know justice? You who hate the good and love the evil, who tear the skin from off my people and their flesh from off their bones, who eat the flesh of my people and flay their skin from off them and break their bones in pieces and chop them up like meat in a pot, like flesh in a cauldron. Now, if that is not graphic, I don't know what is. Clearly, God here was deliberately seeking to bring out the way in which there was a lack of, in fact, I would say an absolute lack of love for the people that the leaders were watching over. I don't think this was, in terms of what was actually happening, God was using picture language as he often does all over the Bible and especially in poetic writings. 
But what is being captured is the fact that people were groaning. They were weeping. They were suffering. And sometimes suffering intensely under those who had power over them. And the power, the abuse, was not removed. Sadly, this is only a matter that remains in the period prior to the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Sadly, the abuse of power can happen anywhere. The abuse of power can happen anywhere. It can happen in the context of Christian marriage, where a wife who is normally meant to be on the weaker side is so abused, so uh, physically, maybe even emotionally abused, that really she is suffering instead of rejoicing in her marriage. It can be the same with respect to children in the context of a home, or again, in the corporate world, employees, whether it's in the home or in the bigger picture of where we go to work, they are dying for the day when there would be an opening to just leave this place because of the amount of abuse that they are going through. And again, as usual in all these situations, they can't report because if they report, it's like the entire structure will fall upon their heads. And therefore, they continue to suffer. In the corporate world, the answer normally is, but if I report, I'll lose my job. And so they would prefer to remain suffering instead of having the matter dealt with. It's the same in the context of the church as well. I remember many years ago in a church that was dwindling and dwindling and dwindling, and I asked somebody why. And he said that the members were voting with their feet. That's the way the person put it. They were voting with their feet. They, they are sending a signal that we have suffered enough in this place. Out we go. And if you can imagine, it's as if they were escaping through every uh, window that was open in the building, so to speak. So this is nothing that remains in history. Instead of what leadership ought to be, and what should leadership be? It should be servanthood. Leadership should be about love. Leadership should be about the good of the people that are being served. You remember the Lord Jesus Christ when he was teaching servant leadership to his disciples, what he said was that in the world, and he was referring to the Roman world, that those who are in positions of power, they in fact abuse the people. They use them for their own aggrandizement. And he says, it must not be so with you. 
Well, how does God deal with a leadership that is living for itself instead of living for the people? Essentially, with respect to these that we're speaking about, he was basically saying the first line of discipline or chastisement is this, I stop listening to your prayers. I stop listening to your prayers. Verse 4, then they will cry to the Lord, but he will not answer them. He will hide his face from them at that time because they have made their deeds evil. Now, this was not simply in terms of day-to-day -day life and living because in many ways they had a lot of resources from their positions of leadership that they didn't care about God answering their prayers or not. But this was with respect to an encroaching army, disaster coming from Assyria. And basically what God is saying is that previously I would have raised a champion. As you cried out to me, I would have raised a warrior who was going to lead the armies of Israel and consequently fight the encroaching army. But this time, sorry, I will not do so. You can rush into the prayer chamber, you can pray, sorry, I am now determined to punish you. I'm determined to have you removed from power. And so it does not matter how much you pray, disaster is coming. And that's something we all need to learn, brethren. That ultimately, the leadership comes from God. It's not from ourselves as human beings. It comes from the Lord. And when we are abusing our positions of leadership, a time comes when God simply says, enough is enough. And when he presses the button, I want to assure you that there is no turning back. You can cry to him as you please, because now he is saying enough is enough. You have abused your position. Consequently, I'm now coming through with judgment, because they have made their deeds evil. What often makes the situation worse is when those who are supposed to be his mouthpiece, the prophets, when they too become deceitful, then there is no hope for the people whatsoever. And this is what happened with Israel. Look at verse 5, before we look at how God will punish them. Verse 5, thus says the Lord concerning the prophets who lead my people astray, who cry peace when they have something to eat. In other words, when somebody bribes them. We'll see a little bit more of that later. When they have something to eat, but they declare war against him 
who puts nothing into their mouths. In other words, when the channel through which this invisible God who rules creation and rules providence, when the channel that he has provided through which people ought to hear him, when even that becomes a subject of money, dependent on the paycheck, that I will only speak thus because of the favors I get. On this other side, I will speak thus because I do not get favors. You can be sure that the next item is God's judgment. It's hopeless. It's hopeless because the God who is there is a God of holiness, as we saw this morning. He's a God of holiness. He's a God that we must be listening to. And his, not his message is not dependent on the weather the economic weather, the social weather. His message is dependent on the moral climate that is there now among God's people. And that's one reason why within the context, in this case we are applying it to the church, within the context of the eldership, there must be someone or those who are specifically designated with the word, whatever term we might want to give to them. And they must be faithful in expounding his word. Sadly, the truth that the Apostle Paul spoke about concerning the last days, those truths are already with us. This is what he says. And all of us, I'm sure, will say this is true. Second Timothy 4 and verse 3. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching. They won't endure it. But having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and would turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths, into stories that are not true. That's what myths are. They will turn away from listening to the truth, but will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. That's the day in which we live. It's a day in which individuals will say, the Lord spoke to me yesterday. He gave me this message for you. When it's a lot of nonsense, they just want to make you feel good in your sins. What does he say is his response to this? He will punish 
the prophets too. He will punish the prophets too. How? He will completely take away from them the revelation of himself. Completely. After all, when he was revealing his message to them, they were not delivering it faithfully to the people. So, why continue revealing himself to them? Look at this. Verse 6 and verse 7. Verse 6 and verse 7. Therefore, it shall be night to you without vision, and darkness to you without divination. The sun shall go down on the prophets, and the people shall be black over them. The seers shall be disgraced, and the diviners put to shame. They shall all cover their lips. Why? For there is no answer from God. That's the way it will be. It will be simply that God closes himself away from them, and they know that they have no word from the Lord. They know. That's part of their punishment. What I love is the way in which Micah distinguishes himself from all these. Look at the way he describes himself in verse 8. But as for me, I am filled with power, with the Spirit of the Lord, and with justice and might to declare to Jacob his transgression and to Israel his sin. Look, the nation was living in sin. The, the, there was idolatry across the nation. There was the abuse of power across the nation. You don't go in there and simply start praising everybody because they're aligning your pockets with money. You speak forthrightly into that situation. And even now, there is the failure in leadership. There is the failure among the priests. Somebody needs to speak. And Micah was saying, that's what I'm doing. That's what I'm doing. But he's not just speaking. He is speaking effectively. Speaking effectively. But as for me, I am filled with power, with the Spirit of the Lord. And brethren, this is something that we must constantly be praying for. That those who are God's true servants are not just telling us the truth of God, but that they are doing so powerfully. They are doing so powerfully. That our lives are being changed because not just of head knowledge, but because that knowledge that is being given to us from his word is sinking deep enough to our hearts so that when our sin is being exposed, other people may not know, but where we are sitting, God 
is knocking on the tablets of our hearts and saying, it's you I'm speaking to. You know the controversy that I have with you. Your sin has reached the ceiling, so to speak. You need to change, otherwise discipline will come your way. And that in the quietness of our hearts, there is genuine repentance. Genuine repentance. A coming back to God. Dealing with our lives in his presence. And therefore, averting discipline. Averting discipline. That's what the pulpit ministry should be doing. And part of the answer is the prayers of God's people. Praying that God's spirit might rest upon his servants. Not through the loudness of decibels, as important as that might be sometimes to keep us awake, especially in this heat. But the still small voice of that comes in the secret recesses of our hearts and shows us our sin to declare to Jacob his transgression and to Israel his sin. That's what brings about revivals. It's primarily when God unleashes upon his people in one generation preachers on whom the spirit rests. It's not just one or two churches that change. The entire religious climate in a city, in a nation, changes because God has micas who can say, I am filled with power with the Spirit of the Lord. So let's keep praying for this. Let's keep praying that God, the Lord of the harvest, might send such preachers. That the churches may hear the true voice of the Lord by those in whom the, the Spirit of God works. Those who can say that the fire burns in my bones. I cannot shut it in. I must speak. And that therefore, we might see a true and genuine revival once again filling the land as it did during the Reformation, as it did during the Puritan era, as it did during the great evangelical movement. May we again have a mighty army with banners filling our land filled with the Spirit and with justice 
and might. Let me hurry on to the last part because Micah ends this chapter and indeed the entire section of condemnation that begins with chapter 1 all the way to chapter 3. He ends it all with a very clear statement that God is now going to judge Judah because of its leaders. He's going to judge Judah because of its leaders. And that's why I called this sermon Ungodly Church Leaders Are Hurtful. The church suffers as a consequence. Verse 9 to verse 12. Hear this, you heads of the house of Jacob and rulers of the house of Israel who detest justice and make crooked all that is straight, who build Zion with blood and Jerusalem with iniquity. And now he adds not just the leaders, but also the priests and the prophets. And the thing that I want you to notice that is common among all of them is their love of money. The love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Its heads give judgment for a bribe. Its priests teach for a price. Its prophets practice divination for money. Yet they lean on the Lord, or at least think or claim to be leaning on him, and say, is not the Lord in the midst of us? No disaster shall come upon us. Why are they saying this? Because of the money that they have been given. That's it. That's why they are saying this. As the saying goes, whoever pays the piper calls the tune. In other words, it's all in exchange for money. Instead of inquiring of the Lord and saying, Lord, what is it that I should say to these people now? Rather, it is, where has the paycheck come from? So the leaders who are basically providing judgment, whoever has given them the bribe, that's it. It's no longer what does the law say? Who is it that has broken the law? It's got nothing to do with that. It is somebody has given me money, therefore I need to judge in that person's favor. Priests, who are meant to safeguard the law, the written law of God among God's people. Because remember, prophets were not part of the establishment. They, they did not have offices. They didn't function from within the establishment of Israel. It was the priests who had the responsibility to keep reciting, as it were, God's law before God's people, especially from the tabernacle or the temple, which was their office. 
But again, they also were teaching that part of the law that would make the people comfortable. The priests teach for a price. Give them the money, and that's what they will talk about. And then the prophets practice divination for money. The Apostle Peter, writing to the dispersed believers in First uh, Peter and chapter 5, speaks especially to the leaders in First Peter chapter 5. And one of the issues that he pleads with them about is that they must never serve based on the paycheck. They must never do so. First Peter 5, and I begin reading from verse 1. So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion. In other words, you mustn't be forced to do so, but willingly must be from your heart, as God would have you. But listen to this. Not for shameful gain, but eagerly. That's crucial. It mustn't be because of the paycheck. It must be because of God who has called you to this work. Do it. Because the moment it becomes about money, just know that the end is near. The end is near. Because all you'll be doing is saying to yourself, although this is what I ought to be preaching about, if I offend some people, that's it. That's it. Never forgotten a pastor. The deacons came to visit him and said, Pastor, you better start preparing. Your end has come. He said, How do you know? He said, The powerful people in this church have stopped tithing. There's no money. Very soon, there will be nothing to pay you with. He tried to say, but uh, you know, maybe it's just a temporal thing. They said, no. That's how the last three pastors left. So I know what I'm talking about. The pattern was exactly the same. And sure enough, that pastor, his contract expired. Why? There were strong people in the church who lined the offering bag. And when they didn't like you, they simply stopped giving. Now, to the credit of this particular pastor, 
he did not change his message. Nor did his predecessors change their messages. So, they were not individuals who looked at the paycheck before looking at what to preach about. They all continued, and they all, one by one, left employment. And as I speak, that church does not exist anymore. The point here is that when we think about paychecks and paychecks and paychecks, and that's all we're thinking about, money, 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 we stop thinking about God, God, God. We start thinking purely in terms of our own immediate benefits. The consequences in verse 12. Therefore, notice the wording there, because of you. That's it. Because of you, Zion shall be plowed as a field. Jerusalem shall become a heap of ruins and the mountain of the house a wooded height. In other words, a place that was once populated by human beings, once with buildings that had been put up, will now be reduced to ruins and a forest will grow there. Where are the people taken into um, enslavement by the Assyrians? Sadly, that's what often happens when God says enough is enough. where leadership fails to do its job, disaster falls. Three quick points, and I close. First of all, pray for your leaders. Pray for your leaders. Pray for your elders. Pray for your pastors. Pray for your husbands. Pray for your managers. Pray for your parents. Pray for your leaders. In whatever capacity you might be in, pray for your leaders that God may give them wisdom in their leadership and that God might keep them very clear that my marching orders are God. God's word. That's where my marching orders are. Pray for your leaders. Secondly, pray for your leaders, especially when they've got disciplinary issues on their hands. That's when leadership is messy. That's when leaders begin to say, ah, you know, it won't look nice. That's when they begin to look and say, ah, but you know, this person is my friend or is my cousin through that other one, and so on. 
and all those knots that are tied together finally make them begin to say, you see, you know what? I will lose if I take this action. And once leadership fails at that point, a wide door opens, a wide door for sin in the church. So pray for leaders in that respect. And then thirdly and lastly, it is pray for preachers of the word, especially preachers of the word. I've touched on it already. Pray that pulpits may be filled with the truth of God. That preachers may not be preoccupied with themselves and stories about themselves that are larger than life. Eh? Just stories and stories to, to look like, you know, they're the ones who've made it. No. The pulpit might be full of Christ. Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ. And in this particular case, he is the true leader. He is the great shepherd of the sheep. And consequently, he is the one that everybody within the leadership should be seeking to imitate. And everybody within the leadership should realize that he's the one we have an account to give to. And therefore, the preaching must be about that Christ, that Christ, who has died and been raised from the dead so we can all now go to him for pardon and mercy, including those of us who are leaders. We can go to him and say, have mercy on me. But he's also the one who is coming again. And may it not be that when he comes, he comes to turn Zion into a plowing field, a plowed field to turn Jerusalem into a heap of ruins, but rather that he might come to give the crown of righteousness to all of us waiting for him. Pray those prayers that we might therefore, as God's church, avert judgment.